me in the valley, and it's always nice to have her. And I got as a special guest my brother. My brother Paul's here. Now, I'm picking on my brother Paul because my brother Paul doesn't go to church a lot, so he's always a little uncomfortable, so I thought I'd make him really uncomfortable <laughs> by letting you know that he's here. And make sure you give him a hug afterwards because that's even more uncomfortable for him. But I love my brother very much. He's a great uh, uh, guy, and I really admire him and look up to him in a, in a great way. In the, the valley, or in the, I guess we're the north region, right? Yeah. And, in, and uh, the north region basically is the San Fernando Valley, the Simi Valley, and then Shoreline, which is sort of all of Ventura, right? All the way up to Santa Barbara. Well, in the valley and in Simi Valley and here in Shoreline, we're kicking off a series for the next couple months called The Source. Now, I don't know everything Gio's going to talk about, but I know what we're talking about in the valley. And one of the things in this series we're going to talk about is something called the seven I am statements of Jesus. Seven times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am, and then has a blank after that. You fill in the blank with whatever the statement is. Today, we're going to be looking at a statement that he made, I am the gate. The point of this statement was that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Now on the screen, I have a picture, two pictures. One is of Ron and Renee Quint. Many of you know Ron and Renee Quint, yes? yes. They're the lead senior minister in, in, in our, uh, our area of ministry. And the other one is my wife and I. Now, <clears throat> I put this up there because i got to tell you this story. I don't know what it was. Several months ago, I was at church. And we were in the fellowship, and we meet at Canoga Park High School, and we've got a large congregation there, five, six hundred people on a Sunday morning. And fellowship was dying down, and I was going looking around the fellowship for my wife. As a father, we tend to do that a lot. Where's, where's our wives, right? Where's, where's your mother, right? I do that a lot. So I was looking for her, and I saw her from a distance. So I was walking over to her because it was about ready time to go. And I like to be affectionate with my wife. And uh, one of the things I like to do is sometimes I'll come up behind her and I'll, I'll give her a goose, right? You, you know what this is, right? Where you goose somebody on the backside. So I'm walking up to her and I'm, I've got my hand out and I'm just about ready to goose her when it dawns on me that it's Renee, Ron's wife. Thank God I didn't goose Renee in the middle of fellowship. Right at the last minute I was like, whoa, and I... Pulled my hand back and just, I mean, it, but it was that close. <laughs> now, you may be thinking, what a terrible husband. How do, you, how do you not know your own wife? Well, I will tell you, I am not the only person that gets Renee confused with Lynette and vice versa. I cannot tell you how many times somebody comes up to my wife, Lynette, and says, oh, thank you for that message or thank you for that sharing. And it wasn't her at all. It was Renee. <laughs> Renee's own son, Drew. He's a grown man, has come up behind... Lynette, thinking it's his mom, and put his arms around her to say hi, mom, to find out that it's Lynette. <laughs> now, I can't figure out why this is, but have you ever had that experience where you're out somewhere and you don't recognize somebody that you know? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you're at the store and you're talking, and, and they're smiling, and they're talking to you like they know you, and you're thinking, they got to know me, but I have no idea how I know these people for whatever reason. Well... That's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. Turn with me over to John chapter 10. Before we read, let's pray. Father, it is great to be here. Thank you for this incredible fellowship. Thank you for Gio and Karen and their service to this fellowship here. 
They're such great friends, and we're so appreciative of them. I pray for a special blessing with them today. I pray for a special blessing on all the fathers today to have a great day and just enjoy fatherhood. But God, I'm also so grateful to be here with this incredible fellowship, so many faithful people who've gone through so many things over the years, and yet they've stood the test of time. They're faithful men and women. I'm so grateful for them. Speak to us now through your word. Get me out of the way and let the Spirit speak this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 John chapter 10. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Sorry, Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. For the next several minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a boatload of background information. I believe knowing the background of a passage of Scripture is vital to understanding the scripture itself. Yeah. Right. You've got to understand who wrote it and why and what was in their mind when they wrote it. You also need to understand when they're recording an event, you've got to understand the context. What was the reason that this event occurred and what was the reason this dialogue happened? If we were just to read this, I could go any number of directions yeah. if I didn't give you the proper background or context right. and I could be very wrong. In your own personal Bible study, I want to encourage you. It takes a little extra time. It's actually less than you might think to read a passage and then read a little bit before and a little bit after, and that will help you understand the context. And when you understand the context, then you can understand what it meant to the people at the time. Mm -hmm. Then you can apply it to yourself in this day and age. That's one way we protect ourselves from false teaching from God's Word. So let me give you a little background. The Gospel of John was written by a man named John, very good personal friend of Jesus Christ, one of the 12 apostles. The word gospel means good news. There were four gospels. They're like biographies of of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written by very different men for very different reasons. This is how we know the life of Jesus Christ, mostly from what these four writers tell us, in addition to lots of other sources, but primarily through, through these four men's eyes. John was a very close personal friend. In fact, he was considered an apostle. At this time in history, actually it's happened off and on throughout history, a a teacher would gather around himself. You think of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. They all did this similar thing. They would gather around themselves a group of men, and they would teach them their method and their ways. And then those men would pass that on to people around them, and it would be carried on through the generations. Well, that's what Jesus did. He was a rabbi. He began his rabbi ministry, or his public ministry, at about age 30, and he called specific people to be his followers. John was one of the earliest. Of that group of people, he picked 12 to be apostles. That means to be sent. And these men were entrusted to to, to communicate Jesus' method and his message to people 
in their generation and beyond. And it's amazing to think that they did it. Imagine that for a minute. Twelve men in Palestine some 2,000 years ago so effectively communicated the method and the message of Jesus Christ that to this day there are still disciples of Jesus in existence on the face of the earth. That cannot be said for almost any other teacher in history. Very rare does that something like that happen where that method and message is carried on. That says a lot about the men, but it also says a lot about the method and the message. That's a sermon for another time. John the ba- so John, not John the Baptist, the Apostle John was one of the only disciples, uh, uh, apostles to live into old age. Almost all of them were killed and martyred very quickly. But John survived. And in his older age, he decided to write his bio- uh, biography of the life of Jesus Christ. Yeah. His biography is unique because it doesn't give us a ton of detail about the whole picture of Jesus' life. He doesn't really get into the details of how Jesus was born and where he grew up and, and, you know, what he was like as a teenager. It doesn't give us a ton of that information. In fact, it doesn't even give us a lot about his ministry when he first started, what he did at the beginning. The truth is, John focused primarily on the last year of Jesus Christ's ministry. Half of his book is literally focused on the last month of Jesus' life. The first half of his, of, his, of his gospel centers around seven miracles. He focuses on seven miracles. I want you to think about that. You're, you're an old man. It's late in your life. You're ready to sort of give your wisdom. You don't say everything, right? If you were to write a biography, you wouldn't go on and on about every detail. You would condense it into what you felt to be the most important interactions. And from that, people could understand who you were or the person you're writing about was. Just from those condensed, uh, information-packed examples. Well, that's what we have here in John chapter 10. It's one of those incidences in Jesus' life that John remembered into his old age and said, i got to tell the world about this. One other thing that's really unique about John's book is he actually says why he wrote the book. He says very specifically, I wrote it so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote the book. He had an intention. Now, we're going to back up to John chapter 9, verse 35. I've given you some background about the author and about the reasons for his writing. Now what I want to do is give you some context to this interaction, this this event, this this, this uh, discourse that Jesus gave, what was the reason it even came about? John gives us some details. John chapter 9, we're just going to back up a few verses. Verse 35. <clears throat> Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those, who will become, and those who see will become blind. But some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. Now, the situation here is that Jesus was in Jerusalem. As I said, it was the, the last part of his life, on, of his time on earth. He was in the city of Jerusalem. He spent much of his time 
far north of Jerusalem in an area known as Galilee. But he would come down to Jerusalem periodically to celebrate different festivals and different feasts. And this was really the last time he was going to be there because he was going to be killed within months of this interaction, maybe even weeks. And when he was walking by, he happened to pass by a blind man, a man who was born blind from birth. And his, his disciples, his followers said, why did this man become born? Why was he born blind? Who sinned, the man or his parents? That was a common way people thought in those days. We sometimes still think that way today. Right. Bad things happen. Oh, I must have done something wrong. And a lot of times that's probably true. I know in my life when something bad happens, it's usually because I did something stupid just beforehand, right? But that wasn't always the case. And in this situation, Jesus basically says, that's not what this situation is about. This man was born blind because God would be glorified through him. You know, that may sound like a harsh thing to say. But think about it for a minute. How many times have you seen a show on TV or some, some bio on somebody's life and they were born with such a bad handicap or they, injured or they suffered some severe uh, uh, um, tragedy in their life, but they overcame it? And especially when, they're when they tend to be religious people, they glorify God. And they're such a great testimony. Well, that's what Jesus was saying. Hey, God can be glorified here. So what Jesus does is he heals the man. He spits on the ground, which may sound kind of gross, but he did. He liked baseball, apparently. And he made mud out of, the, out of the spit. And he put it on the man's eyes. And he told the guy, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So the guy did. And when he came out of the water, he was seen. Imagine that. Born blind from birth, and now he can see. What an incredible miracle. Yeah. Sight is one of the most important senses we have. And Jesus healed the man of one of, his, one of the most tragic situations anyone could experience, being born blind. You can see why John chose this story. It left a mark in his memory. So the guy goes home. And just like me in fellowship about to goose Renee on the rear end, he walks in and nobody recognizes him. Like, I didn't recognize Renee, and none of his friends recognized him. He came home seen, and they didn't even know who he was. It's pretty amazing, you know, it was just such a change of context. They were used to him being a poor blind beggar, and he comes walking in, everything's fine. They couldn't get their mind around this incredible transformation. That's what happens when Jesus comes into our life. Imagine if we spent 10 minutes with Jesus, we'd probably walk in and nobody recognized us either. Yeah. So after a while, he finally convinces them, no, it's me. And now they believe him, so they take him to the Pharisees, up to the synagogue. Now this, again, there's a lot of, I told you I'm going to give you a lot of background. This was a common practice. Whenever something amazing happened or special or incredible or somebody was healed of some kind of thing, they would bring them to the Pharisees to get the blessing, so to speak. Wow, look at what happened. And the Pharisees would kind of examine it and go, wow, this is a, a blessing from God. And they would acknowledge that. So they bring him to the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, well, how'd this happen? He said, well, this guy named Jesus healed me. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The Pharisees immediately did not want to hear that. This was at the end of Jesus' ministry, and the Pharisees, as a group of people, had already decided he wasn't the Messiah. They didn't want to hear about him anymore. His popularity had peaked, and now it was on the decline, especially in the, in the Pharisees' eyes. You say, explain that real quick. I'll explain it. The Pharisees were like they were a group of priests and their role was to protect and preserve the word of God. And whenever there was some new teacher would come on the scene, they would go out there and examine this person, their life, their teaching, their methods, 
and they would compare that to what they knew of the Word of God and decide whether this guy was a good teacher or not. Well, they had done that with Jesus and decided that he wasn't a good teacher. Not because he wasn't a good teacher, but because they didn't like his message. You see, the Pharisees had a real nationalistic perspective. They believed that God had promised Israel would be the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And so they were always looking for a Messiah, as God had promised, who would come and raise up the nation of Israel to be the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Well, there were lots of messiahs in their history that would pop up. And they would go and examine them. And sometimes they were just crazy people and they would go, not that guy. In Jesus' case, Jesus wasn't going to bring a military army. He wasn't going to overthrow the Romans and establish the nation, a physical nation of Israel. In fact, he told them, you'll not see it. It's not something like that. He said, I have a spiritual kingdom that I'm going to bring. They didn't want to hear that. They wanted a physical kingdom. So they rejected him. Not because he didn't do miracles. Not because he didn't have amazing teaching. Not because he was uh, you know, an a stellar, stellar candidate to be the Messiah. But because they didn't like what he had to say. So when the blind man goes to the Pharisees, they go, well, Jesus did this, it can't be good. And they, so they go, well, maybe you weren't really blind. So then they had to get his parents to come up to the synagogue, and the parents had to verify that this really was a man born blind, and after that, there was irrefutable proof of this man's healing. Then what they did is they attacked the man, and they tried to make him disown Jesus. Well, if you had been born blind from birth, and somebody came and healed you like that, yeah. I think you'd be pretty favorable to that person. It'd be hard to convince you to change your mind. Well, that's what the guy does. The guy's like, he's a poor blind beggar. He's looking at them like, you guys are crazy. This guy healed me. You never did anything like that for me. I'm not going to disown this guy. So all they could do is kick him out of the synagogue. We pick up this story where Jesus finds him. What a, what a great testimony about the love and compassion of Christ. Not only did he heal the guy, but when he heard the guy got persecuted and kicked out of the synagogue, he went back and found the guy to just encourage him and to be there with him. And he has this conversation with him that's really interesting. He says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? That phrase, as you begin to read your Bible, or if, you, if you're new to it, or if, you're, or if you've read it for a while and there's certain things you don't understand, that phrase shows up a lot in the Bible. It had two meanings. The first meaning is human. A son of man is a man, a person. But the other meaning of the, of the phrase son of man was a reference to the Messiah. In the, in the Jewish faith, in their old writings, there were lots of prophecies about a Messiah, and, it was, and he was always called the son of man. And so Jesus asked this guy very specifically, do you believe in the Messiah? And the guy says, well, tell me who he is. Apparently, he didn't receive his sight until after he left Jesus and washed in the pool, so maybe he, couldn't, he didn't know who the guy was when he was talking to him. And when Jesus said, I'm the guy, he immediately realized that this guy healed me of my blindness. He absolutely must be the Messiah. So he put his faith in him and believed. And Jesus said this statement in verse 39. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now you claim to see your guilt remains. 
You see, Jesus said this within earshot of some Pharisees. And they heard this statement that the blind will see and that those who see will be blind. And they immediately knew he was saying something about them. Yeah. And they got an attitude. <laughs> We're the Pharisees. We can't be blind. And Jesus looks at him and says, you know, if you were actually blind, you would be not guilty of sin. But because you think you see, your guilt remains. He rebukes the tar out of these Pharisees. Stood right up to them and challenged them. Now, we get into John chapter 10. Now you know the background. Now you understand the context of why Jesus said, I tell you Pharisees, Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. Who is that statement directed at? The Pharisees. He's calling them what? Thieves and robbers. How would that be for you one day? You come to church, you're hanging out, and Gio says, you're a thief and a robber, right in your face, just right there. I mean, how would you take that? Go. Wouldn't be really good. Yeah, let's go. It's on. Wouldn't be the most favorable thing to say. You wouldn't think, hey, Gio, you want members to come, right? What are you doing here, right? You're going to say something like that. Well, that's what Jesus did. He, he tells something of a parable. Parables are unique. I'm doing a whole series on parables, and I love teaching on the parables. Parables are a type of teaching. They're a way of instructing people. And what, what it is, is at, at its most simplest way to understand a parable is it's a comparison. One thing compared to the other. And there's always a point. And the point is usually this thing is better than that thing. And in this case, Jesus talks about two kinds of shepherds. A legitimate shepherd who enters by the gate and an illegitimate shepherd who enters some other way. In fact, the words that he used for thieves and robbers go beyond just being a thief and robber. They also communicate that their intention was malice, that these people were bad-hearted. And so Jesus really hammers these Pharisees in this parable, because he compares them to basically poachers, people who have nothing good in store for the sheep. And they're coming in over the wall, through the back, uh, around the, the roundabout ways, trying to, trying to do harm on the sheep. Mm. Now, not only did Jesus go from, from bad in terms of his view of the Pharisees, but he just went to worse, right? I mean, it just, he just escalated the, the conversation. He was not bringing this tone down. He was elevating this interaction. It was getting hot, and it was getting hot fast. The analogy of the parable, which is really neat, is Jesus, when he told parables, there were always stories that people could relate to. In that time, 2,000 years ago in Palestine, sheep herders were common. You would see them around. We don't see them that much anymore, right? That's not what we see. The way, the way sheep pens were organized in those days is that they were usually attached to a house they were big, fenced areas, might be partially covered, and they had one gate, and that was by design. There was only one way in and one way out, and that was so that the sheep could be protected at night. Oftentimes, lots of shepherds, more than one shepherd would bring their flock into that, into that pen, and what the shepherd would do is when all the sheep were in there and they were all ready to have the night there, the shepherds would sleep at the door so that nobody could come in through the door. Now, in the morning, when it was time to take the sheep out, we think of sheep herders and we think of horses and we think of sheep dogs and we think of driving this herd of sheep over to the mountains where they could eat or whatever across the countryside. But in those days, the shepherds treated the sheep a lot like pets. They gave them names. 
and the sheep responded a lot like a pet. So in the morning, the different shepherds would get up and whistle or snap their fingers or call out the names, and the herds would divide themselves out, and they would follow their shepherd. And the shepherd would walk up, and his little herd of sheep would go with him. And they wouldn't go to anyone else because they, they had a, a rapport between their shepherd and their herd. So Jesus uses this very common analogy, this is something that everybody would have understood immediately, to confront the Pharisees. Now here's the most interesting thing, verse 6. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. I believe this is a key to understanding this passage. You see, the Pharisees thought of themselves in a, in a different way than Jesus described them. So I want to take one more minute, go a little bit further in the background. Hopefully I'm not boring you. I'm a history guy. I love history. People ask me, why do you like history? History was my favorite subject. You know why? Because it already happened. It wasn't hard. You just had to remember it. I was not a math person. Math, you have to figure something out. That's not easy for me. I don't like math. There's numbers and they add up. And then there's letters in math. Have you ever seen this? There's numbers and letters. And you're supposed to figure something out. You're kidding me, right? Give me history all day long. It's already happened. I just got to remember it. That's right. easy. Easy. Come on, Joe. Awesome. So a little bit of background. Before we get too hard on the Pharisees, let's understand the Pharisees for a minute. The Pharisees were an important group of people in the history of Israel. And they actually did a lot of good things. Not all of them were bad. Some of them did become followers of Jesus. But one of the things they did is they were the protectors and they were the preservers of the law. See, the Pharisees had rigorous rules with the scribes and the teachers of the law. They had rigorous rules and guidelines on how to make copies of the law. If you know Jewish history, they were slaves in Egypt. They were freed by God in the Exodus. They went to Mount Sinai, and they were given the law, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. And ever since then, there have been priests who devoted themselves to copying the law so it could be passed on through generations and generations and not get lost. It's not like, you know, it's like having backups on your computer. Anybody ever lose all their information on the computer because they didn't back it up? Well, the Pharisees backed it up. There were tons of copies. And they were rigorous. They, they, they had a, a, an amazing commitment to integrity. So much so that the Bible we have is absolutely the same Bible they had. There was no transmission errors over the centuries. We know this because in the 40s, in the last century, in the 1940s and 50s, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And those scrolls were written before Jesus Christ was born, as early as 5 BC. And when they were translated, they were copies of the Old Testament. They matched almost exactly to the Old Testament you're holding in your hand right now. Amazing that the Pharisees were a part of that group of people that maintained the integrity of the Word of God. They protected it, so they did a really good thing. Another thing that was good about the Pharisees is they were open-minded and they were spiritually sensitive. Whenever somebody had a dream or a vision and they would go to the Pharisees, the Pharisees wanted to know about it. Tell me about this. They investigated it because they were always open to the possibility of a new revelation, a new teaching from God. That's one of the reasons why they examined Jesus so quickly in his ministry. When he started doing amazing things, very quickly the Pharisees are there Okay, what happened? Explain this. That's why they were there with the blind man. Okay, how did this happen? They wanted to know. They wanted to see, is something miraculous happening here? Is there a revelation of God that's being given? So they weren't always all that bad. So why, Jesus, are you hammering them? 
why are you calling them looters, thieves and robbers with only bad intentions for people? Well, the Pharisees, you can tell, were wondering that same thing. Verse 6, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying. They're like, that's not who we are. We're the good guys. Verse 7, therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now we're going to get to the point of conviction. The Pharisees had a hard time grasping why Jesus would be so condemning and so judgmental against them. Right. And Jesus tells this parable that they don't get, so he then explains the meaning of the parable. And it's even more challenging, it's even more direct than the parable. He says, I am the gate. You see, the Pharisees, they were supposed to be the gatekeepers. That was their identity. They protected the integrity of the Word of God. They preserved it for generations. They were the open-minded, spiritually sensitive people. And they, in spite of all of the evidence about Jesus, came to the wrong conclusion. You see, Jesus was performing miracles. And he was doing good, as we read in the story of the blind man, to all kinds of people. And his teaching was rock solid. It was as consistent with the, with the Old Testament teachings as could be. He was, in fact, the Messiah. He really was. And he came and he did miracles and he performed miracles and taught amazing messages. And without a shadow of doubt, if you just would examine the evidence, there's no way to conclude anything other then Jesus was the Messiah. And the Pharisees, who were the gatekeepers, didn't recognize the Messiah. The only people, in fact, the, the one group of people who should have saw him first and should have identified him immediately and should have ran around and told everybody and their brother, the Messiah is here, was the Pharisees. And that very group of people, the, the protectors, the preservers, the open-minded, the spiritually sensitive people in Israel, if anybody was going to heaven, it was the Pharisees. That group of people missed the most important revelation that ever came since the law was given hundreds of centuries ago at Mount Sinai. They missed who Jesus Christ was because they didn't like that he wasn't going to kill the Romans for them. That's what they wanted. They wanted the Romans overthrown so they could establish their nation and be in charge. And they didn't like that message. Jesus said, I came for a different kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, one that has nothing to do with nations and wars and who was in charge and who wasn't. Right. A kingdom that was open to anybody in any situation in life. And that's not what they wanted. So not because of the evidence, but in spite of the evidence... They were irrefutable evidence. This man was born blind and he was healed by an encounter with Jesus. It was irrefutable. And yet they still disowned Jesus. They still rejected him. The gatekeepers couldn't see the gate. Right. 
they thought Jesus was just another Messiah candidate of a long list of Messiah candidates who, in their mind, didn't measure up. When in fact, he was the Messiah. He was the gate. Can you imagine shepherds in that day coming to the sheep pen with their herd and wandering around, walking right by the gate, trying to figure out some way in? I mean, it would be a, it would be a comedy movie, watching the shepherd trying to figure out how to get into the, into the pen, and the gate's right here the whole time, and they're, they're wandering around. They can't figure out where it is. They're the very people who are supposed to know where it is. And they didn't. They refused to accept him for who he was. And that's why Jesus was aggressive with them. That's why he confronted them. That's why he was so intense and willing to rebuke them. Because they claimed to see. But they were really blind. And the poor blind beggar who couldn't see could see better than the Pharisees. And so Jesus was short on patience with them at this point. And he began to ramp up his attack, his, his condemnation, his judgment on those Pharisees. Verse 8 is really important. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. You know, if you ever dig even deeper, maybe read a commentary, want to know more about this passage, this verse gives people a lot of problems. What does that mean? Is Jesus condemning Moses? Is he condemning Abraham? Is he condemning all the heroes of the faith? Because that's all, all who came before me. Are they all bad guys too? Well, compared to Jesus, yes. Not even the best of us compared to Jesus. Not even the best character in Israel's history. The most iconic figure, Moses, can hold the candle to who Jesus is. By comparison, Moses is a thief and a robber. Besides the fact, Moses never claimed to be the Messiah. But other people have. Other people before Jesus Christ, Confucius, Buddha, Caesar, Julius Caesar, uh, Cyrus uh, the Great, Alexander the Great, various leaders at different times all thought they were gods. And Jesus said, everybody that came before me, I don't care who they think they are, any Messiah candidate or anybody else for that matter, can't hold a candle to me because I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. I'm the way to salvation. All those that came before me, they're just thieves and robbers. Uh You know, the same is true today. A lot of people think that there's a lot of ways to heaven. There's a lot of ways to a relationship with God. A lot of people will say, oh, it's like roots to a tree. But that's not what Jesus would say. Confucius is not a way to the Father. Muhammad is not a way to the Father. Buddha is not a way to the Father. Darwin is not a way to the Father. Transcendental meditation is not a way to the Father. Pop psychology and any other psychologist, Freud, they're not ways to the Father. They're not ways to be saved. Education, oh, I'm going to touch on the big one. It's not a way to be saved. It's not a bad thing, but it's not a way to be saved. Saving the whales is not a way to be saved. Keeping the planet green is not a way to be saved. Putting fluorescent light bulbs in the ceiling is not a way to get saved. Right. None of these things get you to a saving relationship with God in heaven. Amen. Only Jesus Christ. Right. Only Him, because He is the gate. Amen. The only gate around the sheep pen. It's the only way in and out. 
is through Jesus Christ. And that's the point he is making in this parable. That is the point he is making when he says, I am the gate. He is laying it out very clear in bold letters, easy for them to see. And hopefully it's easy for you to see. Amen. There is no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. Amen. We have got to get that on straight. Amen. We've got to be unashamed about that. We've got to be bold about that. We've got to be willing to tell people about that. Because if you haven't looked, the world is a messed up place. There's a lot of confusion out there. There's a lot of false prophets and false teachings. And Jesus made it very clear, I am the way. If you're visiting with us today, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, I have an assignment for you. I have a request of you. I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to read the Gospel of John. You may not understand all of it, and that's okay. Just read it to get the point. I tried to give you some of the background, give you a context to understand it. It's basically seven miracles of Jesus, and then afterwards there's seven discourses where he explains and he, and he talks about who he is. And the purpose of John's writing for that book is to help you believe. That's all I want you to do. Take this week and read the Gospel of John. Read it with an open mind. Read it with a spiritual sensitivity and see if it can't move you. If it doesn't speak to you like it spoke to me and thousands of people over the generations who've read John's words, understood that he was an eyewitness, understood that there was irrefutable evidence that he was putting out there on the record for all to see and no one could refute it you might discover the gate. You might just stumble your way in to a relationship with God. The imagery of a gate, I want to give you just a little more context, a little more background, partly because I just think it's so cool, has a a long history in the Jewish consciousness. See, gates were the ways in and out of cities. In those days, cities were walled, and the gate was very important to a city. You had to have a good gate to protect the city, like the sheep pen. Oftentimes, business was conducted at gates. The, the city elders would sit at the gate. Judgments, court cases were decided at the gate. Edicts were announced at the gate. Uh, 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 business transaction occurred at the gate. It was an important place. It was an iconic image. But there's one image that's even deeper than all of that that um, a Pharisee, above all else, would totally understand. And that is when the Jews were freed from slavery in Egypt centuries before, and they were led to Mount Sinai where the law was given, the Ten Commandments and the law. There was instructions for a tabernacle to be built. A tabernacle, the word tabernacle means dwelling. Basically what God said was, hey, I want you to build me a mobile home. That's what it was. It was a mobile home for the presence of God. So he gave instructions, and and the tabernacle was created, and basically it was a big tent, and they called it the tent of meeting. And in the tent there were two chambers. The first chamber was the holy place, The second chamber was the most holy place. And in the most holy place, the presence of God resided. And it was was a way in which people could could live Mm -hmm. with God. Nothing like that before had ever happened. That that even concept of of having a relationship with God where the average person could interact with God was non-existent. In fact, when you want to think about what religion was like in, in those days, think of King Kong. They would take the virgin and sacrifice her to make the God happy. That was basically what all other religions were. We have to appease these gods. 
But in, in, in God's revelation on Mount Sinai, what he revealed to them is he wanted a relationship. He wanted right. to live with his people. Right. So they built this tabernacle. Around the tabernacle was a wall. They erected a wall around it. And there was only one gate mm -hmm. on that wall. There was only one way in to the house of God. There was only one entrance to get into the sheepfold of God and to be into a relationship with God. Well, centuries later, that tabernacle was not used after a while, and King David built a temple, which part of it still exists to this day, at least the, right. the Temple Mount. That's where you see the Jews praying and wailing, the wailing wall. That's part of the Temple Mount. King David built an amazing permanent home for God, the presence of God, the temple. And it was based on the description of the tabernacle. And guess what? There was only one gate. There was only one way in and out of that place. In order to get into a relationship with God, you had to go through the gate. There's no way on heaven or on earth that the Pharisees would have missed that picture. There's no way. What's really cool is if you read after John into the book of Acts, do you know what the name of the gate was? They called the gate beautiful. Because a relationship with God is beautiful. That's right. Yeah. Anyone that has had a relationship with God understands what it's like to have your sins forgiven. To be freed from your slavery to sin like the Israelites were freed from slavery in Egypt. And you've gone through that gate and every time you go by that gate, it's just the most beautiful gate there is. Because that's where I can interact. Where I can have a relationship with God. If you have been in this fellowship for any length of time, I want to remind you of the beauty of your relationship with God. Yeah. I want to encourage you yeah. that God loves you and He opened a door for you. Only one door and you found it. You found the way in. The Pharisees couldn't see it, but somehow you found it. <laughs> By the grace of God, the sheep found the gate when the, when the, when the gatekeeper couldn't even find it. Right. And He's let you in. And you now have a relationship with God. But, you know, there comes a responsibility with knowing where the gate is. Yeah. What is that responsibility? What you should do... I'm sorry? Exactly right. Your responsibility is what the Pharisees should have done. When they investigated Jesus, they should have been the first people blowing the trumpet saying, we found the Messiah, everybody get over here, here's the way into a relationship with God. Well, so it is the same with us. We ought to be out on the street announcing that we have found the way. Now, if you want to wear a sandwich board and walk around with a blowhorn, go ahead. I don't know if that's effective. But there are other ways to be effective. Building relationships, having people into your home, at least inviting somebody to church. When was the last time you had somebody come to church? There's ways to go about this where you can introduce people to the gate that is called beautiful so that they can, they can have a relationship with God themselves. They can have what you have. In the, the Valley Ministry, we have a, several Bible talks in Simi Valley. And for the summer, we've gotten together and we've decided in Simi Valley that we're going to do an evangelistic summer series. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to go after all of our friends and people we can think of that live in Simi Valley because we want them to find the gate. Yeah. Simi Valley is a very religious area. There are more churches than there are parks. 
But you know, not a lot of people in those churches know about the gate. As sad as that may be. And so we want to we wanna do this for the summer. We want to do something on Thursday night out there that we can invite people to so we have something to bring people to so they can learn about Jesus Christ, the gate, the way into a relationship with God. Yeah. In the valley, we're doing similar, we're coming up with similar ideas, different plans. I was talking to Gio. I know he's got summer plans out here. And I want to beg you, I want to implore you, join in the plan. Don't be the bad Pharisee. <laughs> Don't be the Pharisee that Jesus rebukes. Be the Pharisee you should that they should have been. Introducing people to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, at the end of uh, that fellowship, when I almost goosed Renee, I got to tell you, I was very grateful that I didn't actually goose her. Thank God, at the last minute, as I was walking up behind her, I recognized who she was. Let's be the kind of people who recognize who Jesus really is. Amen. 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 Amen.